Hey listeners, we have a very rare opening for an associate sound designer mixer here at DeFacto Sound. That's my sound design studio and the studio behind 20,000 Hertz. To learn more, visit jobs.defactosound.com. This application window closes on May 22nd. Now, onto the show. Hello. Kaisho. Ning hao. Bonjour. Salam. Yasas. Annyeong. Ciao. Konnichiwa. Hola. Hello. You're listening to 20,000 Hertz. I'm Dallas Taylor. Of all the sounds that it's possible for us to make, nothing comes more naturally than what I'm doing right now, talking to you in my native language. When you think about it, the noises that come out of our mouths can be strange, but they're the basis for how we do pretty much anything. The languages that we've developed to communicate with are really central to who we are. But as the world changes, many languages may be under threat. I've always been fascinated by language. That's Professor Lara Boroditsky. She's a cognitive scientist based out of UC San Diego. She spent her career thinking about language and how important it is to us humans. Language is a uniquely human gift. There are no other creatures that have the incredible, complex system of communication that we have. Of course, animals do communicate. Birds have beautiful and complex songs that they use to attract mates and stake out territory. Whale calls can be heard for thousands of miles across the ocean. And even insects have their own code of clicks, buzzes, and squeaks made by the percussion on their hard outer shells. There are lots and lots of smart, clever creatures out there. But there are a couple of really important differences between animal communication and human language. One is the sheer size of it. So for about 15 million years of evolution, the size of the communicative repertoire of most species is about 15 to 30 different communicative signals. That means that these animals are capable of saying a maximum of 30 different things. They might have specific noises for, hey, I'm over here. Or, warning, danger approaching. Whereas a 20-year-old English speaker knows about 42,000 words. And those 42,000 words can be combined in any number of ways to get a much finer point across. For example, we can tell the difference between having cleaned your car and having your car cleaned. Same noises, different order, totally different meaning. Or different order, same meaning. When 900 years old, you reach, look as good you or not, hmm? So the size of our vocabulary is one of the things that sets us apart from animals. The other difference is how we use it. Humans are very social creatures. Humans really like to chat. (laughs) We like to chew the fat. So uh, we like to talk about, oh, you know, what do you think will happen tomorrow? And how do you feel about this? That's in sharp contrast to how most other animals use their language tools. They have much more practical purpose in mind. When bees come back to their hive and do this wonderful three-dimensional dance in the air to show other bees where the nectar is, that's amazing. But really, that's all they ever talk about. They never talk about anything else, (laughs) right? They don't chew the fat. That inclination to chat has led to us coming up with all kinds of ways of expressing our feelings and describing the world around us. We can talk about what has happened, what might happen, what will happen, what would have, could have, should have happened. Millions of years of evolution has led to an incredibly complex communication system. 
In fact, it's so complex, we don't even fully understand how complex it is. There are 7,000 or so languages spoken around the world, and there have been many more in the past. 7,000 languages. Considering that each one of those languages has grown from a separate community independently figuring out a unique system of communication, it's even more incredible. Around the world and across the history of the human species, we've found 7,000 ways of chewing the fat. Some of them may sound familiar, like Shetlandic, from the small islands northeast of Britain. And then, as I got there and was moving among folk interested in poetry, then they become aware of that. And, and I find that they quite lick at it, and that was really quite strange. While others are difficult for non-speakers to even get their head around, like this language from South Africa called Kosa. Each of these languages carries in them an incredible cultural history. All of the ideas and thoughts and adaptations that were made by generations and generations of other humans. It's an incredible human artifact, but also an incredible tool for humans to think and communicate. There's absolutely nothing like it anywhere else in the animal kingdom. Language has given us these tools for communication, which in turn have allowed us to cooperate in a way that's unique to the animal kingdom too. Shared language is the foundation for civilization. Without it, it's hard to see how we could organize ourselves to make towns, cities, schools, shops, or any of the stuff that sets us apart from even the most intelligent animals. But that's not to say that everything always runs smoothly. George Bernard Shaw had this wonderful quote. He said, uh, the only problem with communication is the illusion that it has occurred. We always think that we have communicated things perfectly only to find out later, wait, you thought I said what? For 20 years you thought that? There's no achieving perfect communication. But of course, the more rich the communication channel is, the more ways you can come back and verify and say, I think you said this. Is this what you meant? Another person who spends a lot of time thinking about language is my friend and fellow podcaster, Helen Zaltzman. Helen makes a podcast called The Illusionist, which you should totally subscribe to. From Helen's exploration of language, she's all too aware of the power and the limitations of the words we use. It's not like there's a treaty saying that this word means this, and it only means this, and it specifically means this. There's just this kind of tacit agreement between us that something means a certain thing and we roughly agree on that, and that is how we communicate. It really takes everybody to agree to that bargain, and anyone can break it at any time, and uh, then you get chaos. It is extraordinary that it works as well as it does. The thing is, language is not a concrete thing, and it hasn't been invented. It is something that is shaped by every human that uses the language because everyone will use it slightly differently even without necessarily realizing it, even because our mouths sound different. At the most basic level, it all comes down to our mouths. All languages are made up of a variety of speech sounds called phonemes. These are the noises we make by constricting the different parts of our mouths and throat in one way or another, changing the way that air flows. Changing the location of that constriction and how much it's closed off will create different kinds of sounds, like plosives. P and B sounds are made by exploding air from between the lips. The same kinds of explosions further back in the mouth make D, K, G. You can literally feel your tongue touching different parts of your palate. So, give it a try for yourself and pay attention to where your tongue is. Repeat after me. P, 
B, D, K, G. And right at the very back of your throat, you have the glottal stop, the sudden swallowed pause you'd find in phrases like, uh oh, try that, uh oh. Other sounds come from vibrating parts, like V, V, formed by teeth and lips vibrating together. Try it, V, V. Other sounds include the nasal cavity, like M and N, M, N. Try that, M, N. Each of the world's 7,000 languages vary on how they use all of the sounds our mouths can possibly make. Some use relatively few. Piraha in the Amazon region of Brazil uses just eight consonants and three vowels. English uses a large set of 44 phonemes with an unusually large number of vowels. The following sentence uses all of the English phonemes. With tenure, Susie'd have all the more leisure for yachting, but her publications are no good. But English isn't the most diverse. The Ta language from Southern Africa has more than a hundred phonemes, including many unique types of click. Now, if you try to imitate a language like that, you're likely to struggle. If we're not used to certain phonemes from experience with our own language, we may have difficulty in finding the right place to form the sounds in our mouths. This is an issue even between American and British English. I just find my own mouth so incredibly limited phonetically. I can't even say things in American. You know, the rhotic R, which is a great difference between American English and British English. My mouth doesn't have the muscles to do it. It's, <laughs> it's such a shame. You, you just take it for granted. You can throw it out whenever you want. Around the rough and rugged rocks, the rascal ran. Ruh, ruh, ruh. Ruh, 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 ruh. My husband's name is Martin, but when he introduces himself in America, it's a little hard for Americans to understand when he introduces himself. But, um, I mean, how would you say it? Martin. I'd say Martin, but I'd feel like it was probably wrong. There's no wrong. Don't go around saying your way is wrong. Ah, thanks. It's just different. So Helen has firsthand experience with how we use English on a daily basis. As part of Lara's research, she studies how speech sounds vary between different languages. English distinguishes R sounds from L sounds. So R and L sound really different to us English speakers. But this isn't a meaningful distinction in Japanese. So Japanese speakers have a really hard time telling the difference between R and L because that's just not a distinction that exists in the Japanese sound system. Roger Moore? Yeah. Okay. Even within a language, the phonemes can get warped and twisted to produce an almost infinite variety of accents. And it's a topic that many people feel very strongly about. The way you pronounce things, the accent that you carry, carries so much information about your identity. I grew up speaking Russian as my native language, English as my second language. And the way that I speak English to most people just sounds like a normal American accent. And if people meet me and they don't know that I grew up in Russia... If they find out, say, two weeks later, they feel very suspicious about me because they can't hear my accent and they feel like there's something I'm hiding. So we really take accents to be a great indicator of who a person is, where they're from. We expect to get a lot of information from it. It's kind of inevitable that with language so central to our personal and cultural identity, it becomes more than just a tool for communicating. It comes to define us and we shape it to our needs. 
But as Lara has discovered, the language we use also shapes us in return. Languages talk very differently, even about very basic things, about space, time, number, colors, causality, basic things that you would need to name the rainbow or count your fingers or do the hokey pokey. For example, some languages don't use words like left and right and instead put everything in cardinal directions like north, south, east, and west. Like Guguyimitir. This is a language spoken in Australia. Even talking about body parts would involve words like north, south, east, and west. So you'd say there's an ant on your southwest leg. It turns out that using language in this way had a surprising effect on the minds of its speakers. People who speak languages like this actually stay oriented incredibly well, better than we used to think that humans could. If I asked you to point north right now, could you do it? It might take you a moment or two to orient yourself, but the Gugu Yumithir speakers can do it without hesitation, even in an unfamiliar place. In many ways, we're really the sum of the languages we use. We use our words to describe our feelings, our medical conditions, our environment, and the words that we choose shape our own minds and our identities. For example, are you the kind of person that uses words like simpatico or serendipitous? Or are you the kind of person that only uses literally to mean literally and not as an intensifier? We strongly identify with people who speak our languages. We feel a lot more comfortable around people who we can understand. It's a real marker of identity. So, language shapes us as individuals and can define a culture. But cultures change. And right now, we're changing faster than ever. What will that mean for communities' characteristic sounds? Can language move with the times? Or are we facing a mass linguistic extinction? We'll find out after this. Here's this episode's mystery sound. And again. If you think you know that sound, tell us at the web address mystery.20k.org. If you get it right, you'll be entered to win a super soft 20,000 hertz t-shirt. For me, the hardest part of hiring is narrowing down the search. And that's where Indeed can help. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million visitors every month. That makes it the world's largest platform for finding skilled staff. In fact, during the time it'll take me to read this ad, 23 people will have been hired on Indeed. Whenever we list a job, we get a lot of applications. So many of them are from brilliant and talented people. But it can be really hard to have those applications rise to the top. With Indeed's smart matching engine, that process becomes a lot easier. And over time, the matching engine learns your preferences. The more you use it, the more efficient it becomes. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers said that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Right now, our listeners can get a $75 sponsored job credit at Indeed.com slash Hertz. That's Indeed.com slash H-E-R-T-Z. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The simple sounds that we make with our mouths are one of the major things that set us apart from animals. The words that we use shape our brains and are at the core of our self-identity. Human language is infinite because you can keep recombining words in new ways and create new sentences that you haven't heard before. It allows you to infinitely recombine and make new things basically every time you speak. 
Like the recombination of genes leads to evolution in nature, recombination of words eventually leads to linguistic evolution. Languages are tools that we craft to suit our needs. And so we have the ability to change things that we find distasteful or not useful anymore in our language. That's how languages always have changed, is people negotiate with each other about how they're going to talk in a way that best suits the way they want to think and the world that they want to live in. And so just a reminder that languages are these living things that we craft and have the ability to change if we want There are words being invented or added all the time or the meaning is changed because new things are happening. Every year, new words are added to the dictionary that sharply reflect our changing world. Recently, the Oxford English Dictionary added the word exomoon, a moon orbiting a planet that orbits a different star to our own, because that's a thing we know exists now, which is pretty cool. People are very often resentful of new linguistic terms, and yet that is a process that has been happening Ever since language was first uttered, none of the terms were born at the dawn of time. All terms have been invented at some point and, you know, didn't used to need a word for aeroplane and came up with one when aeroplanes were invented. In this way, slowly and gradually, what we consider to be our language transforms beneath our noses. If you go back in time, the subtle changes in the way our words sound and how they're used really add up. This concept is outlined really well in a YouTube video from Simon Roper. The video is called The Evolution of English. Here's Simon reading a passage from Charles Dickens in 1860. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. That's pretty recognizable for about 160 years ago. Now, let's rewind another 250 years to early modern English, in the time of Shakespeare. To bear or not to bear, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a save troubles and by opposing, end them. We can still understand that, but just a hundred years earlier, people were speaking Middle English, which is suddenly very different. My name is Parot, a beard of Paradise, a natur de visit of a wondrous kind, daintily dieted with diverse delicata species, till Euphrates, that flooded, driveth me into Ind. And if we keep going back in time, about a thousand years ago, the Lord's Prayer in Old English sounds completely foreign. Father Ore, so art on Havanum, see thin nama ye halwood, to become a thin riche, ye worthy thin willa, on Eurvan, swaswa on Havanum. We can go even further. You have Proto-Germanic and Proto-Indo-European, which was spoken about 4,000 years ago. It's thought to be the ancestor of all European languages. I think English is an extremely interesting language because it combines so many other languages. It's very unusual. The English language has come to reflect the long and complicated history of Britain itself. 2,000 years ago, the Romans invaded, they added Latin to the mix, and then Germanic forces invaded, they added their own stuff, Vikings, and then 1066, the French invaded, and they not only brought French, they brought a different form of Latin. And then, added to all that, you have got all of the words that came into English because of Britain's very enthusiastic is the euphemism I might use, colonialization of the rest of the world. Britain is an island nation, so it's always had a strong navy. And from the 16th century, ships sailed far and wide, discovering and colonizing as they went. 
At its height at the beginning of the 20th century, the British Empire encompassed almost a quarter of the world's population and land area. They took concepts and items from other countries and they brought the names back with them. There was a lot of linguistic interchange. Like pajamas, which was originally a word to describe the baggy trousers worn by Indian Muslims. Or the word jungle, morphed from the Hindi term jangle, meaning a dense growth of trees. Now, the British Empire is no more. But the English language is still spoken by two billion people. More than a quarter of the world's population. It's the most widely spoken language in the world, and it has been for some time. And that's because while the British were bringing home new words, they were also leaving their own language behind. English was firstly taken around the world and often asserted over whatever local languages there were. So it was a language of power. And that also might have incentivized people to use it because it is somewhat asserting power or claiming power or at least attempting to or communicating with the people of power. And then it sort of becomes self-sustaining because other countries think, okay, well, if I want to deal with things internationally, I should get on board with what other people can speak. And the more countries that do that, the more English is kind of chosen as the international language of, for instance, science. So for now, at least, English is firmly embedded in the cultures of many countries. I think it's an extremely interesting language, but it's also very problematic because it has linguistically colonized so much of the world and wiped out a lot of languages whilst doing it. So I love it, but I also feel a lot of pain about what it has done. The loss of language is something we've become more aware of in recent years. Linguists claim that we're losing languages at a rate of one every two weeks. They predict that half of the world's 7,000 languages will be extinct in the next century. The tragic thing is, we probably won't even realize they're gone. Because there are also a lot of languages that have no written record because there would have been oral languages. If there's no physical record of the language, then once it's lost and everyone's dead and it was pre-recordings, you don't even know what is gone. In many cases, the loss of language is an unfortunate consequence of globalization, but sometimes it can be a little more sinister. What happens when you have a language that is quite specific to your geographical region or to your race or to your culture, and then you're not allowed to use it. You can lose a huge amount with that language, not only this collective memory and certain things which will be specific to you and the other people who use the language, and there may not be words for in other languages because they wouldn't necessarily need them. Since the language we speak defines our self-identity and our cultural identity, suppression of a language can mean a direct suppression of a cultural group. For example, the Scots language. This is a clip from a TED Talk from Michael Dempster. We went in and the hulls weren't any hulls, the mountains weren't any mountains, the woods wasn't any woods. All the names of the animals were rang. Uh, dogs wasn't any dogs, owls wasn't any owls, um, stuckies wasn't any stuckies. Craws, pleeps, coos, doos, furrets, all this was rang. People in Scotland, a lot of them will speak at home and then they would get to school and they would be physically punished if they used it. There's a huge amount of shame attached to it. And then a lot of them would never use it again or they wouldn't realise that it was actually a language that was very widespread amongst people in Scotland. They might think, oh, this is just slang we use in our house and I mustn't use it anywhere else. But it's not all bad news. 
With the strengthening of the Scottish identity, there's now more widespread support for the language. There's been a lot of campaigning to try and revive Scots and make it more visible. It is an official language now in Scotland, but there are people who are my age or younger who were beaten at school for using it, and it's very hard to remove that wiring in your brain. And it's such a big thing representing your culture and your feelings about that culture and your ways to express it. The global world of international language is not always easy to navigate, and people haven't always got it right in the past. But finally, we're waking up to the value of our languages and what they can tell us about ourselves. I think at the root of my interest in language is empathy, because language is so individual to the person who's using it. They might not be using it in ways that I think they are, because I only have my subjective experience and then some academic knowledge of other people and anecdotal knowledge. I can't truly know what someone else is thinking about, but being aware of the different possibilities of language is one of the few ways available to me to understand someone else's thoughts. If we can understand the power of language, then we can be more conscious about the way we use it It's a very, very complex instrument, and to use it thoughtlessly can be very hurtful, it can be dangerous or misleading. Also, you can use it in a very positive way if you know how to, so you can use it to uh, be very kind or to really expand your horizons or other people's horizons. Not only is it helping us connect with other people around us, it's the key to making us who we are as individuals, as cultures, and as a species. Language is really part of the human essence. The more we understand about human language, the closer we get to what is really unique about the human species and how we come to be so incredibly smart and sophisticated as we are. The fact that we have so many languages is a real testament to the incredible ingenuity and flexibility of the human mind, that human minds were able to invent not just one way of looking at the world, but 7,000 ways. That tells you just how much capacity and creativity human minds have beyond what we're used to in our own languages and cultures, but just how much more we're capable of. Twenty Thousand Hertz is produced out of the studios of DeFacto Sound, a sound design team creating the sonic palette of the world's most thoughtful brands. Find out more at defactosound.com. This episode was written and produced by Layla Batterson and me, Dallas Taylor, with help from Sam Sneebly. It was edited and sound designed by Soren Bejan. It was mixed by Jai Berger. Thanks to our guests, Professor Lara Boroditsky and Helen Zaltzman. Lara continues to research, write, and present on how language helps to make humans so smart. You can follow her on Twitter at Lara Boroditsky. The Illusionist is Helen's podcast about language, and it's absolutely fantastic. Be sure to subscribe by searching for The Illusionist. That's illusion with an A. Thanks also to Simon Roper for the samples of English through the ages. You can find more fascinating stuff on his YouTube channel. Just search for Simon Roper. Gregory Corlett named this episode. If you'd like to help name future episodes, follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Finally, if you haven't checked out our website, you're really missing out. You can find all sorts of things. Full transcripts of the show, additional YouTube videos, and links. You can check it all out at 20k.org. That's two zero and the letter k.org. Thanks for listening. 